Solana uh, radio back. The thing is, back in the day, I didn't do Solana radio consistently. I did Solana after hours every night, and like maybe once or twice a week, I'd randomly spin up Solana radio, and it sometimes would be 11 in the morning, sometimes 2 p.m., like just sometimes during the day. But I think these days, the way the space is, climate is, uh, and the way it's sort of influence has been distributed and uh you know kind of yeah i guess distributed is the best way to say it that having a consistent space daily is probably the best way to do it and so we're gonna try to run a short space that's kind of on topic of nfts and solana and do it every single day at the same time and hopefully provide value to the people who come to listen that's great i remember i just remember the after hours i think it's the first spaces that i really participated in and it would be like 3, 4 a.m. my time in another apartment that I was in that I fucking hated. And it was like, this is fun. This is 4 a.m. I have to wake up in three hours, but I like this. It was. Yeah, that was it feels like such a long time ago. It was fun. The thing about Solana After Hours was we had such a good group that kept it incredibly funny. But there was, if you listened long enough, it was still somehow more educational than most other spaces. So it was, it was quite a, an, an odd balance of those two things. Uh, to be fair, you don't... I, educational spaces i don't feel like there are that many at least they're not the biggest ones you have them right. once in a while notably gaius i feel but it's not always it's a lot more about entertainment now i feel absolutely and and not just entertainment like the thing is that entertainment worked so well for for us but the thing is that the thing that entertains people now is drama and so people don't care yeah. just to come and listen to funny people. They want to come and find out, oh, my goodness, you advised a project and it's a rug, da, 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 you know, and then, oh, Frank did what? It's really become very clickbaity and drama focused in the last, I don't know, eight months or so. <laughs> Since Chilla and Villain started doing spaces? <laughs> yeah, yeah, without saying that, exactly that. And then to be honest, there's people who followed the playbook in a, in a much better way. So I, I think Alex has done it in a very bad way. I think uh, people have different opinions on Frank, but I think he's done it in a relatively, he's found a way to create controversy in a way that doesn't actually hurt people and be at the center of attention. And so it's just kind of become the the new attention economy. Yeah, 100%. But that was like the starting topic. Um, I think let's get into like the more podcast type of uh, vibe, if that sounds good to you. Absolutely. Let's do it. So I feel like that. I, the question that I kind of want to start with is because right now you're back to NFTOLI, but when I entered the sauna space in like fucking October 2021, NFTOLI was, I think you're, you were the first like sauna influencer that I followed. You were like this very, you're pretty much one of the biggest sauna influencers. And it's kind of like, who were you before becoming that influencer and before becoming that like kind of huge face of Solana? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends how far back you go before that time. But uh, early on in crypto, I went by an alias called King Rug. And I was very involved in the Polygon back then Matic DeFi ecosystem. And I also bought a lot of Bitcoin back in the day as much as I could. And uh, did a lot of DeFi farming on Ethereum and Matic and eventually found Solana early on and became a part of Solana Twitter before NFTs. Um, but I, I imagine you're asking more so who who was I before like crypto kind of blowing up in general? Like, are you asking a, a personal question? Sorry. Yeah, let's go for that. What was the like before crypto? Yeah. I mean, I was raised in a very small, not, not quite small town. It's still a city, but it's a very small city in, in Northern Ontario, Canada. Um, 
very kind of quiet life raised in the country, lots of woods and creek in our property and, you know, dogs and family, friends, that kind of thing. Uh, and born from Finnish immigrant parents. And so I'm a dual citizen, Finland, Canada, gone back and forth between the two quite often in my life and just raised and started working out of high school, went to school in Finland and came back and found crypto. That's the basic spark notes and crypto changed my life once I found it. Uh, I didn't finish school, did some other things. And now luckily I've never had to get a degree or go to school because I've been basically working crypto for the last few years now uh, in any capacity that I can. So, yeah, how long have you been working in crypto? Yeah, so I had a government job. Uh, my last real sort of job I had was working actually in the COVID lab early on in the pandemic, um, just doing administrative tasks, administrative and, and, and some basic IT stuff. Uh, and I swapped that job from being full-time. They let me switch to part-time in uh, end of 2020. I switched to part-time or so before kind of the first big crash. And then in sometime in 2021, I switched and did the jump to full-time, full-time crypto. And that's now been about a year and a half that I've gone 100% in crypto. And I guess two and a half years when I kind of did part-time crypto, part-time work, and then even more years when I would work a nine to five and then come home and do crypto like it was a part-time job in the evening. So. Okay. So you switch into crypto, you find Solana, you get involved in Twitter. Was it, did you, were you kind of aiming to become a like influencer figure? Was it something that just came about kind of, what was that, that journey to becoming Sol NF, like Sol NFTs, NF Tolly in early 20, well, late 2021? Yeah. I mean, people who, people who know me better in this space know that I, I don't really care that much about influence. Um, I obviously understand it has benefits and so I don't want to be that guy who says throw it all away like it's given me a tremendous amount of opportunity and it also helps us market the projects we work on now but I've never really cared too much in fact I went through a phase where I kind of tried to nuke my engagement because I didn't really want to be an influencer anymore Um, and so it was never something that I necessarily aspired to I have always tried to create things and so early on in my crypto days under the alias King Rug I was making a bunch of YouTube videos and some of them were doing pretty well on kind of early DeFi tokens. This is like pre-NFT boom. Um, and I was getting, you know, a few thousand views on some videos and it was it was pretty good. They're all hidden now and the channel doesn't exist. But um, so I, I was always trying to kind of make it in a sense that I could then, you know, make enough that I didn't have to work a normal job and have opportunity. But it never really was about being the sort of face or voice in the ecosystem. Um, and then I just really loved Solana. So I made a meta page called Soul NFTs and it was titled NFTs on Solana uh, before other people kind of really jumped on that bandwagon. And, you know, this was pre-SMBs, pre-Degen uh, Apes, pre-Thugbirds Mint and started just tweeting, hey, these are the like projects that are minting in the next month. And those were the three projects. It was like, it was Soul Llamas, Thugbirds, Degen Apes and SMBs. And I was like, hey, these are launching in the next few weeks. Go check them out. And so the whole point of the page was just to have a centralized source that people could go to and say, oh, this is what NFTs are launching on Solana because it was really hard to consolidate that information in one spot. And so people started following me because I just told them what projects were minting. But by the time September came, you had 15 projects launching a day. And so like I couldn't just list everything all the time. And I started kind of 
curating a bit and people wanted to know my actual opinion on what projects were worth minting. So I started kind of becoming more opinionated. And the moment I became opinionated, I realized I can't be a meta page anymore. People come to NFTs on Solana thinking it's this official page. And that was the birth of NFTOLI. And when I became NFTOLI, I just started really blowing up. I went from, you know, 10K followers to 40K followers in like, I don't know, five weeks or something. And kind of early on in Solana days was much more relevant than I am now. And there was a time where like, I was probably one of the two or three central figures, probably after Big Brain and Function. And, um, and like, I don't look at that period as something I ever want to have again, to be honest. Uh, but it was interesting to learn and, and to be there and to sort of be kind of in that NFT main character arc. But it wasn't something I aspired to. And it's something that I'm glad that it's quieted down significantly. Um, but I don't mind sharing my opinion and having a platform means you can kind of help share your opinion when things are bad. And so I've, I've never been one to run away from sharing my opinion when I think people are doing things in an unethical or cringy way. Sorry, that was a very long winded response. I don't mean to go on massive tangents. No worries. I think it's, it's kind of the, the objective, right? People go on tangents and, and you get to learn a lot more about like the actual thought behind it. But so you mentioned that like, kind of trying to separate yourself from that engagement and from the influencer position. And I think it was, I mean, it was a pretty stark contrast from going from like the host of a lot of spaces, tweeting very often, having all that engagement to becoming a lot more laid back, focusing probably on like the collective thug monkeys and everything. And yeah, I kind of wanted to ask what made you want to separate yourself from that position of influence and from that position of having as many followers and keeping up with the space? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors. One is just that it kind of sucks if you're ever the main character. I remember just not being able to tweet anything without having, you know, someone who hated me replying, calling me a rugger or a scammer or a grifter, and then putting it in their DAO to have 20 people go and like and retweet it and start screaming ratio. Like that type of stuff kind of, I think I, I handled it fairly well, but after months and months and months, it does really start to wear on you. And so like, I, I sympathize with people like Frank who have to deal with that on a much larger scale than I did. Um, but so like, uh, that was one, one factor, but I think even I'd already kind of dealt with that and, and been pretty okay with it before I made that decision. I think I just got so tired of the space. I thought that the NFT, especially when I saw the bear market kind of coming, I was screaming from the hilltops, like, listen, guys, I think we're going down. Like when Solana was $100, I was like, it's not impossible for Solana to hit 13. That was the number I kept saying was $13. And uh, we ended up going to eight. I didn't expect that. But, um, and people were just like calling me a bear. People didn't like that I was tweeting against. And I, I would just go and, I kind of felt like the, the sky was falling and, you know, it wasn't going to be good and people were going to lose money. And then I'd open my timeline and see people like, what floors are we sweeping? And in spaces trying to get the, the biggest alpha. And I was just, it just got to me. And I was like, this is so dumb. So I changed my at and I kind of started shit posting like one day just to prove a point that I didn't care about engagement. I just tweeted every letter of the alphabet in a row and nothing else in like a 30 minute span and was just trying to like, do anything I can to just not be deep in the NFT space. And I started shit posting as the cow. And what it meant is that I ended up having a much more organic community of people that stuck around in that time. And we have a lot of inside jokes and a really good time. And I'm really happy with that because we have a very strong group now that meme about the cow and oat milk and thug monks and all, all sorts of things like that. And 
and a lot less of the normie NFT bros that are just trying to get alpha to get a 2x on a play. So that was some of the reasons behind it. But in the last sort of month, I've decided to kind of try to be more active in the NFT space and kind of for the sake of, of, of our own projects and what we're building, I think it's helpful. And so that was part of the name change back. And also I've been tweeting more about NFTs again. And um, I don't, I've never cared much about engagement, but my engagement is significantly better than it was, you know, four months ago. So kind of re-entering the, the sort of tips and tricks you do to be at the forefront of the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, having that influence is definitely part of the game. If you're going to be a founder and if you're going to try to drive all the the hype, the marketing, the successful project, I think it's very much initiated with Frank being in spaces. Right. But it's become, yeah. Yeah, and, and sorry, just it's, one thing that really matters is, is are you doing it for you or, or are you doing it for your project? And so the first time I blew up, it was just for me. I didn't even have a project. Whereas this time it's like, okay, now I see the benefit of it. It's not just because I want to be this narcissistic center of attention with a massive ego. Like it, it, It's not anything to do with that now. It's just, hey, there's a very clear transactional reason why I ought to do this that benefits the people that have believed in the project I'm building. So, you know, pull up your boots and do it kind of thing. Of course, I think yeah, you make a good point where you have that separation of the two. So when you think about those influencers that are that may or may not be doing it for narcissistic reasons, but are doing it for themselves and not for a wider project, what do you think of like the new like guard of influencers with the, the Shillin villain of the world or the like Bark or um, Easy and this whole new world that's very different from what it used to be with uh, like NFTOLI? Um, function in that past group yeah so ice knife yeah so i was very critical actually even early nft days i was critical of people like ice knife and legend and buckets um even big brain uh less so guys like function but um i was always kind of i was very negative to other influencers back in the day and i i, I kind of would take some of that back because i i think some of the reasons i was negative were too too smaller reasons but these days, this new wave, I've been very critical of the new wave of influencers, but I've kind of softened a little bit towards some of them. So it really depends on who you're asking about. Um, Alex and Bark, I mean, this is a recorded thing. I know it's a podcast and I, I don't like causing unnecessary drama, but I really think they've done things that are not only unethical, but just just bad. I, I really, really strongly don't think they're good for the ecosystem. But you take someone like Easy, and I think Easy, Easy is a net positive for the ecosystem. And so it really does depend on who. And there has been a changing of guards, for sure. Um, I view things a little bit differently than Easy. Like if Easy is going to run a space, and I'm going to run a space, I'm probably going to want to talk more about why Solana is technically superior to Polygon. And Easy is probably going to want to talk about, you know, did NFT volume go up and what the alpha is? And that's just more of a difference in, in focus. But as, as a person and influencer, I think he's, he's ethical. I think he's a good person like that matters as well. And, and so there's other people like that, that I think are, are relatively good. Um, not a big fan of Alex and FUD and some people that associate with them. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of like, you know, King FUD hasn't quite done the things they have, but is pretty unafraid to associate with them. But guys like Easy and Everything and Mark and I, I don't even know who these people are. I'm, I, I'm, not, a, I'm not opposed to them, and I, I, I like these guys quite a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, you're going to have both sides of the spectrum. And, yeah, it's 
I feel like the the interesting part about it is that you have some of these people who are really playing well what you were mentioning earlier the attention economy where it's really that much more about the drama and about getting that attention that negative attention and you really see the separation between those who get attention from just like generally decent vibes and trying to provide value and those who get that attention by takes that are just they're there to get attention and to get people to react and it's all emotional Mm -hmm. and i'm guilty of that sometimes yesterday i tweeted something about frank that i just knew would make d gods engage and i got like thirty thousand impressions on it um so like sometimes that's part of the game because at the end of the day it is the internet like i'm all for good vibes and actually providing value but i do get the like sort of minor drama that's not really drama because just the internet and you're having fun i'm all for that i think it gets too far when it becomes too personal and actually affecting people's uh investments and personal lives just because you want to cause drama which is what i think guys like bark and alex have done yeah i mean i've i haven't followed the whole alex bark machi taiwan trilogy type of deal but it felt like such chaos but anyways outside of the world of influencing you founded thug monkeys when you were more or less at the top of that first influencer arc and what was the reason for that yeah what was the point um language is a little bit complicated uh some i could maybe say i co-founded it but at the very least the original meme was that i was a resident influencer and so if there was anyone who founded thug monks it was definitely daniel um he was mostly steering the ship and as time went on it started becoming more so like if we were in a team call and i joined i i often had sort of final say like no that's a bad idea um and people would listen to me but i think that was that was less about role and more just um presence so but yeah th- that was just one small thing that i i would say i took over thug monks about six months into the project i took it over completely and so now it is just me but i i wasn't the main founder uh what went behind it was man like derives were rampant in october 2021 and bitcoin and solana kind of topped off and started crashing and the nft market wasn't doing too well and so people were rotating out of projects and buying just these garbage deriv rug projects and I was one of the most adamant vocal people against it. And so long story short, I got thrown in a group chat and said, hey, we want to meme and make fun of this concept of rug projects and tell people not to mint it. We just think it'd be funny. We didn't expect to mint out. We didn't expect people to buy it. We honestly were just like, hey, don't mint this. It's a rug. And we had fun with it. We did all the typical memes that happen with a rug. Like, oh, we're going to take your money. We're going to fly to to Dubai. What Rolex should Daniel buy with your money? You idiots. We're going to delete the Discord when it mints out. Uh, we made the the UI UX as horrible as possible on the Mint page. Um, and, and just like all those types of things and telling people not to mint, we're going to rug you. And it just became such a massive anti-marketing campaign that none of us could have foreseen uh, that it launched. And all of a sudden, like it was successful and blew up. And a lot of people hated me now because they didn't realize it was ironic. And I realized, okay, most of the people that bought this, even though I'm not the founder, bought because of my platform. So I'm in this for life now. <laughs> like, like we minted and we're like, hey, there's no promise here. But the moment it sold out, even though it would have been technically ethical to say, hey, listen, we said there was no promise here. I just felt this burden where I'm like, I owe these people something now. 
uh, because they bought because of me and I don't want my followers to be the ones losing money while everyone else's followers didn't. So how can we turn this around? And it's been a long, long, long journey that I think we're finally starting to see the culmination of that. And I think the people that have believed in it for a long time are going to be able to have some really cool things built under the collective for their sake. So yeah, talking about the collective, how did you go from exactly like these monkeys that were quite literally DROs of SMBs pretty much that had the whole anti-marketing campaign that had a lot of backlash at the time from quite a few salty people um, to creating what you're calling like a home for web through creatives and the new art, the this completely new world really. How is was there a link between the two? Was it just something that you wanted to do and realize that Thung Monkeys was a great platform to bounce off of it? How did it how was that inception? Yeah. So once I took over the project, we uh I one of the reasons I took over is because I realized, hey, if we're gonna fix this project, it's gonna require capital and risk. Uh, there isn't money that's gonna be paid to the team in the future. It's actually gonna be the other way around, it's gonna come out of our pockets. And so we set up the entangler to go back to 2D. And people just had fun with it. And I started noticing, like, who are the key members of our community that are having fun? We've got so many wonderful one-on-one artists. You had DJ and Poet playing along. You have Down There Listening. You have B-Day. Niche has been here along the whole time. You had Joy Hog. Um, you had um, Wayne Newton is a thug monk. Uh, you just had all these wonderful Luna Voss and Richwater and just people that were having fun with the whole thug monks community. And we started noticing, hey, these people, long story short, a lot of these artists were involved in Thugbirds and in my opinion, got kind of alienated from the community during that phase. And they were looking for a home. And it was like, hey, we can provide a home for creatives and DGENs and find a way to like mix meme culture with also supporting creatives. I think that's a hole that is seen in the space right now. And so how can we bridge PFP culture with one-on-one art culture? And that's when the collective was birthed. And so that's still the goal of the collective. We haven't unveiled most of how we plan to do that. But the number one thing is how can we take PFP marketing, D-God style projects, Lotus Gang style projects, or like, like Lily, like mass PFP projects that people love and meme and, and, and play along, and th- that will be IndieCove. And how do we take that and point people to tools and things that make them want to be excited about one-on-one art, create, uh, supporting creatives, musicians, content creators, all those sorts of things. And we've just been sort of plotting and plotting and plotting and planning and planning and doing that for the last year or so. But the the basic way it came to be is, hey, we've got artists. There's a hole here where artists need a home and artists want tools built that empower them. And we can do that through our community. And so that's that's been the plan. And that's what we are still set out to do. So do you have like, there are other projects that are doing, I think, arguably similar things if you look at i would go say boombox for for music which interestingly enough i think kind of came from the same place where you had new dumb money who felt alienated who had all that drama with thugbirds and was like fuck it now i'm gonna do something better or you have like ministry of art uh from toshi which is also trying to serve as a home for creatives and more specifically one-to-one art do you see that as competition um two different things How's that, these similar, less slightly different projects, what's the outlook on that? Yeah, so one other name I'd throw in the hat there is the URS um, as a home for 
Yeah, for um, sure. So th- those are probably three that come to mind. Boombox is a bit different. I, I called New Dumb Money the moment I took over Thug Monks and said the ideas we have and spoke to him about Boombox. Boombox isn't a project, um, NFT project. I mean, they, they may do one down the road, who knows. Uh, but as a music marketplace, like I don't think we're a competitor there. In fact, we've been a high emphasis on music and we've been sending people to Boombox. We just did an anthem challenge for the collective in partnership with Boombox. And so we're really good friends with Boombox. We're going to continue to work with them. I love New Dumb Money. I love Boombox Gym and Shadi. Shadi is a hardcore member of our community. So um, definitely not competitors there. Uh, URS and Ministry of Art are two things that we're close, we're friends with. Um, I'm calling Toshi today, actually, about something. I want to pick his brain on something. And we're friends with Boo and Bless. And um, we're... Uh, I don't view them as competitors for two reasons. Our, our collective VIP collection will be more similar to what URS and um, Ministry of Art are doing, but things like Indie Cove and then our rebrand to Indie Monks are, are going to be a lot more like D-Gods and Lily and Tayo and things like that. And so our goal is how do we you know do that, create that mass PFP culture of people who want to buy Catalina Whales and OK Bears and D-Gods and stuff and Utes and point them back and bring them into supporting the one-of-one art scene while also providing utility for everyone involved. I think that's something that we're uniquely positioned to do and also something that no one else is really tackling at the moment. And so I think in the one-of-one art scene, no one sees each other as competition. So we're releasing a collection with 25 one-of-one artists doing one-of-one art for Collective VIP. And I don't think for a second Toshi is looking at that and saying, hey, this is a competitor to... The Ministry of Art. I think we're all about empowering artists, and I mean, I'm going to be giving both both the URS and Ministry of Art are going to have whitelist, um, and they both like I talked to them about that. So definitely not competitors, and we want to support anyone that's supporting creatives at the end of the day. And so if we all have slightly different ways of approaching the same task, if we can find ways to do that harmoniously, then then let's do it, right? Like that's what this whole thing is about. Yeah, I get I get what you're saying, and the whole idea of having the D God Lily Lotus style project and involving one-to-ones is the way you're putting it sounds really unique. And I don't want to like ask too much to get into like the alpha and the things that you don't want to release yet. Right. But how does it compare and does it compare to all of these recent projects that are continuously trying to involve one-to-one art where you see, you know, you have like that 10K mint and then you have a one in like a 20 in 10,000 chance to get the John Lee piece and then the Dejan Poet piece and then the Hyblinks piece and these one-to-one arts that kind of drive a lot of value and speculation to that collection. Yeah, uh, two things that, that I'll say we're doing differently than these projects. Um, one is we're making sure that one-of-one artists we can't make sure every one-of-one artist but get paid and benefit from the utility we build and so the best example of that is that whatever utility we build under the collective like let's take three projects there's collective there's collective vip which will be a 625 supply one-on-one art collection then you have indie monks which is three 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 and you have indie cove which will be in the six to eight k range if you have those three um if we build tools that support or, well, first of all, if these three things all have access to the same tools we build, um, the royalties are being paid out. Like a massive chunk of those royalties in the collective VIP collection are being paid to the artists that made that. So now we asked, we commissioned artists to make a piece. And now, now they have like, all they do is they make the piece and we do the rest and they get royalty 
payments from how well we do, right? Because they're, they're essentially artists that we commissioned. And so most artists will release art and it's just art and that's great. We should buy art just for the sake of art, but we want to provide utility for the artists that are part of our group from the very beginning and build things for them so that they can benefit in the long run. And then the, the second way we kind of want to approach that is that if we build things that are good for creatives, but not only creatives, um, and we give that those tools to holders of these three collections, then all of a sudden PFP people are looking at the things we're building. So one of the things we want to build, uh, it would be beneficial for you to hold one of our collections. And if you hold our collections, um, you're, you're going to be looking the same way if you hold a fox, you're going to be looking at the tools that famous foxes provide. If you hold an IndieCove or an IndieMonk or a Collective VIP, you're going to be looking at the tools we build, and that's going to point you towards creatives. Not every tool, like, but there, there will be things we want to do that will support creatives. So those are the two things I think we're approaching it differently than just, hey, we're going to commission an artist and airdrop this piece or let you enter a raffle. It's like, no, we want artists to be a part of everything we build in a meaningful way, unlike any other project has before. What style of tool are you planning on building? Because you look at the gods, and I think arguably they haven't built that much of a like a suite of tools. I think the only project they can really claim to have done that is Famous Foxes, right? Maybe Yaw, maybe Sharky, but we're not looking at most of like the big PFP projects haven't necessarily built revolutionizing utility that is useful to people outside of the ecosystem of their NFCs? I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. Uh, what I will say, though, is that we're going to attempt to also gamify the PFP side. So what DGODs have done is they've, is they've implemented game theory, right? And they've done attention. They, they, they've mastered the attention economy and they've uh, mastered marketing, etc. Uh, we want to continue that and do that in the pfp side um but i'm not quite at a place where i can say the things we have two things that we want to build that are connected uh they're really two sides of the same coin and i would think of these more as um we do have tools we want to build for creators but those are further down the road so maybe i misspoke slightly on the word tool uh, i would prefer to call it a platform uh that does certain things that you would then be, there would be this added aspect of gamification between PFP communities and one-on-one art communities that doesn't exist currently. Um, and how can we use that platform to help everyone win and also have fun with game theory? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I get what you're saying with the like distinction between platform and tool. And obviously that does... And we sense. do we do want to release tools. I just want to say one thing: two team members are down there, so be very careful about what I say. And uh, and Niche is just spamming laughing emojis. So uh, as I'm answering this question, fair enough. Um, oh, that kind of got me off the. I don't know what I was going to ask. Fuck. Sorry. So, my apologies. Uh, no worries. Um, I was going to go for. Yeah. Um, what matters? as a founder when you're creating that collection? Like what is something, what are the maybe top three things you're focusing on? Is it floor price? Is it hype? Is it the actual utility you make? If you had to put like name three of them and put them in an order, how would you do it? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to intentionally say it's not floor price, uh, but I know that people get excited by floor price. I think the... 
that's a complicated question. I think the most important thing, number one, is that people feel a sense of community and feel a part of something bigger than themselves. And so that is far and wide the number one thing. That's been what's so successful for indie monks or thug monks in the past. And I think we that that has been bottlenecked by the fact it's a derivative. Uh, but culture, like culture is the number one thing for an NFT project. And that's why D-Gods is so successful, uh, is, is culture. Um, secondly to culture, especially with our focus, it really is art. That, that, that it's good art that people can associate and identify with. People want to see themselves in their PFP and make it their brand and identity in, in, in the digital world. And so culture, um, high quality, relatable art is the second. And thirdly, I think people, <laughs> this is a really abstract answer, but people need to have some aspect of hope and belief. They want to believe in something that, you know, this could scale, this could grow. I can be early to something. And so if they believe in, you know, don't fade Frank, you know, I, I trust Frank. I believe in Bunjil. Uh, I, I, that sort of thing. People want to believe in a central figurehead. And obviously, we want to eventually scale out of that so that, you know, like if I get hit by a bus, our project still is successful. Uh, but it's also naive to say that it doesn't matter, especially early on. And so balancing that. And then just lastly, you said floor price matters, but I think volume matters more than floor price so long as royalties are enforced because royalties, volume and royalties are what's really going to drive the ability to build things and create a longer runway to be a successful project. So uh, volume, as long as royalties exist, volume matters more than floor price. If royalties don't exist, then floor price matters more um, because then the project can offload if they've kept some for themselves and they need runway. So would that mean that you're kind of relying on royalties to keep it alive? Uh, no. So our plan is to uh, raise enough to uh, have some aspect of runway. And we hope that the platforms and tools we build will generate revenue. Uh, that being said, I think it's it's just silly for people to say that NFT projects shouldn't want royalties. Um if there's a good royalty solution that exists, it's obviously a benefit that when people trade it, you get uh, royalties. But we, I mean, from day one, we realized this was actually, I, I told the team last August, I said, I think we're going to zero royalties a few months before it happened. And I said, we have to be prepared for that. And that's when we started talking about AMMs and fees and different ways of creating runway. But um, obviously we want royalties, that goes without saying, but we are prepared to not rely on royalties. I don't want to go too much into the royalty debate because, I mean, everyone's already had it, right? But what do you think of Bunchil's most recent solution of that enforcement where you basically said, you want the perks, play the royalties, or get fucked? Brilliant. Love it. Uh, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to him and figure out how we can do the same. It, it just it doesn't make sense not to, right? Because at the end of the day, if you are buying a digital collectible and you want to own it, you can buy it. There's no prompt. If you just want to buy art and you don't want to pay royalties... Like, you can buy a lily and hold it. That's yours forever. There's nothing he can, like, he's not going to do anything to it. But if he's going to continue to build and give his time and things to to trying to provide value to you for holding that, then, yeah, pay, pay royalties or mint. And I think that's totally fair. Um, and the market will decide, right? Like, if people don't think it's worth it, then they won't. But But most people are begrudgingly going and paying royalties. So that shows that they clearly believe 
So if they're willing to do it and the market's decided yes and everyone's paid royalties, then obviously it's a good thing. Otherwise, people will just say, I'll oh, screw this and dump it. Like I think the market's decided, yeah, we'll pay royalties because floor prices kept going up and people have gone and used the back paying tool. So it doesn't even matter what I think. It matters what the market thinks and people have said, yes, this is a good thing. I'm willing to pay royalties and see what you have up your sleeve. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with it. Not that, not that my opinion necessarily matters on the matter, but yeah, I mean... What a debate it's been. Um, what, because you mentioned, like, when we're talking about those top three things that are important, I kind of want to say, like, what kind of has led you to that, to those conclusions? And is there any particular project, maybe maybe it's D-Gods, given how much we're talking about it, but a project that has inspired you in terms of the direction you want to take, the approach you're taking, that, yeah, an, an inspiring project. Mm -hmm. Uh yeah, I mean, firstly, the thing that actually made me realize that that's all that matters actually has been the fact that of every project that launched in the first week of November uh, or in that time frame, the only two projects that have done better than us in that time frame are portals like the Metaverse portals and Borioka Dragons. And so how are we still here? Um, that, that, and it, those were the things that I realized. I'm like, <laughs> those matter. Um, but in terms of being inspired by a project, uh, I mean, for me, the thing that, that really defined how I saw NFTs was the first wave of pudgy penguins when they minted in, in July or August of 2021. So just seeing community and how much community mattered more than anything else was pudgy penguins. I think in terms of like seeing people want to believe in a central figure, then yeah, hands down, it is Frank and D-Gods and uh, there are certainly things to, whether you love or hate him, to try to emulate from how he does things. Not not to be a, a derivative, but to, you know, aspects to look at and say, hey, I'm going to take a hold of that and try to emulate that because it works. Um, and then also just another one, like Liberty Square did everything against the grain. And I knew Liberty from day one. Like I was one of the first people he talked to when he came and said he wanted to build on Soul, And I didn't expect liberty to be one of the top projects on soul uh, I'll, I'll admit that just because i'm like eh, they're going against the grain on a lot of things but what mattered is that people believed in him as a figure uh, people loved the community uh, and i don't remember what the other thing i said but just there was hope there was belief there was a central figure and there was just this wonderful aspect of community and culture that people loved in the squirrels and so at the end of the day those are the things that matter okay fair enough and I mean, I think I've heard a lot of people talk about culture and it's obvious that it's like such an important part, but so how do you make your, how do you manage to form a culture as a founder and how do you make sure that that one's distinct? Because obviously you have that D gods culture, which some people will call, call frat boys, others won't. Um, you have that sappy seals culture, which is all about the memes. At what point? you need to have your own distinguishing culture, right? So how do you manage to create that? And how do you choose the culture that you're building? Well, I think it's, I think it's more of a passive choice than, a, than an active choice. So you're going to portray a certain persona, image, uh, meme style, and that's going to attract similarly thinking people. And those people are then going to take control of it. So when I look at indie monks and I look at thug monks, I don't define what the jokes are, but the people that have found their way to thug monks over this last year are people who 
joke and create culture in a similar way to me. And so what that means is that, you know, you have people, shout out Gokin, Skutsi, Tom, uh, you have people that, you know, really are some of the central figures of culture that uh, you just attracted naturally because you get along with people and community starts to form. So it's not really in your hands. Uh, there are some things that occasionally we put the brakes on, like, okay, no, that's too far. Let's not bring that to the timeline. And people tend to listen because we're so small. We haven't scaled. They're like, if in the group chat, I say, hey, don't bring this to the timeline, they're not going to bring it to the timeline, right? But apart from that, it's just you you be yourself, you try to be authentic and create a culture and you're going to attract like-minded people and then that's going to kind of be a snowball that's going to grow and attract more like-minded people. So pretty much every single person listening in this space right now is in our group chat um, and part of that culture. And they're all like really important members. I see Trill and Steve and Wen and Deal and, you know, Otis, who's been a mod forever. Like it's, you can't control it and it'll become distinct if you're distinct. The problem, one last thing, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but one problem I find is that so many founders do the same sort of copy and paste. Let's go, bro, like, wag me we're like excited on building something unique and they just attract the same type of nft bros that rotate from one project to the next wherever the vibes are good but they're not technically willing to stay and so when you look at the projects that are actually having people that stay in their community from day one to day 365 or day 700 or day a thousand it's because there was a distinct culture and meme style that let people feel like they're a part of something that can't, they can't just rotate and get that somewhere else. And so most NFT projects that pump and dump over a couple month period, they have the same culture here. They all rock the PFPs. They do their call signs and then they go to the next project and do that. But if you can cater and be a unique person uh, that people rally around, and then those people have other people rally around them, it really becomes a snowball of creating distinct culture. And that's something Frank has done better than most I think Bundle has done it as well. I think Liberty has done it well. Um, and I think there's top projects on Soul that haven't done that well. I don't think OK Bears have done that well. Uh, and so I think it's something that we've actually done very well from the beginning. And one reason why I think our community isn't as big as the first three I mentioned, uh, there's many reasons. But one reason is that we're a derivative project that isn't taken seriously. So as we scale out of that, I really think that the sky is the limit. So I like the very like small question here is that I noticed that like, yeah, you notice, you remember the people that are like on the spaces and you probably remember a lot of people that are in your community. Do you ever worry that as it scales out, you might not be able to show that same appreciation to your holders and show that same appreciation to the people that are like here for the ride? Yeah. I mean, realistically speaking, I think with the size of NFTs at the moment, like founders do have the bandwidth to show appreciation individually. Like let's say um, we have a 10K collection. It's going to have what, 4,000 max holders and how many of those are going to be key, key, key members? Uh, cut that in half again. You can know 2,000 people on Twitter, right? Um, if you're talking about, uh, you know, the day when if NFTs scale in a mass way and you're a massive corporation and there's 500,000 NFTs that are, access to this thing you built and it's used by your grandmother and, and her dog, then yeah, like that's going to scale too big. Um, but I'm not too worried about the size that we're looking to scale in this next phase to not have meaningful relationships with the people that are key contributors to the culture. Um, and I think you see that in, in Frank, for example, there's D gods and Utes 
And together, that's what, 25K NFTs. And Frank is still able to be active and he doesn't have time for every member. But, you know, when he sees them IRL, he says, oh my goodness, like I, I remember your, your PFP, your name, you're a legend, gives him a hug and that means the world to them. So I, I, at, this, at this level, no, I don't think so. I mean, okay, last thing I'll say to that. Of course, if we scale, it'll be difficult. Like we've already had to go from one group chat to two and that's been difficult, but Twitter is just so much better than Discord for that but we're over the 75, it will, you know, scaling will make it a little bit harder, but I don't think it'll go away completely. Okay. I, I like the point that you made about the Frank and the IRL thing, because I was, I went to the NFT Paris event, right? Because they had the, like, Utes, Pudgy Penguins, and Deagle Party, and it was actually seriously impressive to see these people, because there was a queue, like, every NFT event, it's overbooked, and it's packed, and everything. Um but yet you still had both Lucanets and Frank just like walking in the queue, walking the crowd, and they couldn't have like a moment to themselves. And they're still smiling and they still have that energy, which was, it was really crazy to see. And so just bouncing off of the IRL side, have you had the chance to be at any NFT IRLs? Are you planning on that? Like Thug Monkey events? What's the outlook on the whole IRL side? Of I've never gone to an IRL event. I... There were a couple I wanted to go to. Um, people always give me a tough time and say I'll never actually go to one. Uh, but I'm not, I wasn't able to cross the border for a lot of the pandemic um, between Canada and the US. Um, that being said, we actually won with Indie Monks, or formerly known as Thug Monks. Oh, yeah, we, we won that Rove World party. And uh, that was crazy. Yeah, it was, it was really, really fun. And so sometime this year, we're going to throw an event with Rove and. I will do anything I can to be there. Like uh, my initial thought was I'm going to say I'll be there hundred percent, but I mean, I could get hit by a bus, right? So I can't say anything with hundred percent certainty, but, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be there for, for all intents and purposes. And uh, that'll be really cool. I think it'll be great to just see a lot of the faces, even just one thing the thug monks that have been a part of the community for the last year and a half, seeing them docks and do shoeys, to win this championship like we all think shoeys are cringe but just seeing the faces and being like oh my goodness that's x that's y that's z like it, it was really cool and so i do look forward to meeting people you definitely have a shocker reaction on you so for some people that you see it's really surprising to see them once you go to an arrow i mean i saw i think the biggest surprises for me was probably actually it was probably chart foo i think which a lot of people have told me that they thought that he looked exactly like his personality on Twitter. I was surprised, but Charfu's a big Charfu's a big guy. He's yeah, yeah he's, huge. <laughs> he's just like uh, <laughs> I would not want to meet him in a back alley if he wanted to hurt me. But yet he's like the nicest uh, dude in the world. So he really is. I mean, he, the guy was like I don't know, fucking two heads above me, and I was like Jesus Christ in Lisbon. But anyways, that's it about IRLs. Um, on a more like personal question because you mentioned that it made sense to rotate into indie collective and a home indie cove slash the collective um it was made sense to rotate into this home for like web3 creatives and the one-to-one -one art space because of the amount of people that you had in the community that were that but i'd probably argue that if you didn't have an actual appreciation for that and you didn't actually care about it you wouldn't want to do it, even if a lot of the community was one-to-one -one artists, right? So kind of why were you personally interested in creating the collective? What drove you and 
the like more personal purpose that you have within the collective? Yeah, that's actually a good point. I didn't mean for it to sound like a transactional thing where we just said, hey, what's the best way we can build a successful project to make the most money possible? Um, and like, oh, look, we have artists here. How can we? Um, I, I think the reason why we had artists in the first place was because I've always been particularly involved in the one-on-one art scene on Solana. And so especially early days, I spent a large amount of my profits in buying a lot of these artists that, that we know and love. Like, I think I was one of the first buyers of Lights Photography. Um, and, and so just buying these guys pieces way back in the day, uh, kid on the Phoenix, uh, was one of the first people who bought his and same with James Johnson and, and just these guys, like I I've always wanted to do anything I can to support them. I don't have the capacity to support artists financially the way I did during the bull market. Um, but you know, we've, we attracted creatives because they, those creatives were our friends that we've supported in the past. And so it was like, okay, how can we continue to support them and build this project in a way that a lot of projects like to say they're supporting creatives, but then they're actually kind of just using them. But how can we actually help them in a way that, you know, we have an aligned incentive? Uh, that being said, like I, I, I am, uh, I've, ha- I have a pretty big, not big, but a lot of my adult life and even high school years have been involved in music. And I had some opportunity to do some music professionally and be involved in Finland um, and so I've been doing that for a long time. Never been a visual artist, but I, I have a soft spot. For someone who I always get made fun of for being like turbo, autistic, and literal, uh, I have a, a soft spot for the arts and creativity. And so I do really like supporting people who create, and I think it's incredibly important. And so I'm, I will do anything to support artistry because artists create culture, and culture is what the uh, space is built upon. And if artists disappear and culture disappears, we're gonna have a bunch of tech with no people. And so anything we can do to support artists and creatives is is something that we ought to do and, and worthwhile. I'm gonna go the very much meta route in terms of the whole like artists and the culture that they create. Um, what everyone's talking about right now in terms of art is AI art. And like not too long, what's your take on that? Yeah. Okay. So AI is just a can of worms. I am of the persuasion that there is something unique to being human and creative that will never be articulated via AI. That doesn't mean every single thing a human does won't be able to be replicated by an AI. Um, but I, I just think that there's something to consciousness that doesn't exist in AI, no matter how smart it is. And it's artificial for a reason and consciousness is this infinite thing. And so we can't birth an infinite thing from the finite, but that gets kind of abstract. So in terms of AI art, I I don't have a strong opinion. If artists want to play with AI art and like use it to help create and and spawn, you know, new ways for them to create, I think that's a good thing. Uh, But I'll I'll never just be like, oh, I'm going to buy this robots piece of art um, that's fully AI. Uh, I, w- I want to buy a story behind a person and people have found ways to incorporate AI with their own personal art. I think that's great, but I, I don't think it'll disrupt real art because people want to buy something that has a person behind it. I don't buy art because it, obviously it does have to speak to me, but a lot of the time I'm buying art because of the person behind it. Yeah, that makes sense. And well, let's just, let's leave it at there. Cause as you said, it really is a can of worms and, it can go in so many directions. And honestly, there's been so much talk about AI recently. It's got, it gets a bit too much. But so 
going back to that, like that passion that you have for the creatives and helping creatives. So right now, I think you mentioned even earlier that you were kind of, that you felt attached to the Thug Monkeys at one point because of the fact that they probably bought it because of your platform. And so at this point, you're, you've effectively become the founder or like the CEO kind of deal of this whole collective. Do you, how long do you think you're going to spend here? Do you think it's going to be like something you're planning on continuing to do for the foreseeable future? And so, yeah, what's the, what do you think is your future outlook on the collective and your role within it? In the absolute perfect world, um, I would scale myself out of Web3 entirely, but I would only ever do that if uh, we were so perfectly set up that it would be a net positive for the project for me to not be involved. And that is far down the road. So the way I tend to view it is that, one, I'm like, I want to do everything I can to make this as successful as possible to reward early believers, but we also want to scale in such a large way that it would eventually be, um, that it would eventually be so large that, uh, I forget where my thought was going, but it, we, we want to scale it in a way, like I mentioned earlier, that if I get hit by a bus, the project is still successful. And so at a certain point, the only way to actually do that is to minimize how much public facing things you do. And so you can say like, oh, it's definitely sustain- like sustainable the way it is now, but um, I still do all the public facing stuff. And there's still this sort of like cult-like leader mentality that Elon Musk has and Frank has and Bungel has and et cetera. Uh, if we have that and we say, oh, well, it'll be fine. We could stop any day. You don't actually have a good test sample. So you do kind of have to slowly ease out of that. But that, that, that doesn't mean not being a part of the community. Like I'll, I'll be a part of this. You know, my, my passion is just to be a part of this community. It's a huge part of my identity. Um, but ultimately, the goal is to set it up in a way in which I can be a part of the community. We can have fun, but we're also as sustainable as possible without having a single point of failure. And that's just a smart business move. Um, in terms of how long I'm doing this and, and what's next, uh, it depends how well the products we ship work and how well we scale the project. Like at this point, I've invested money and given, I haven't had another job for over since, since August is the last time I had a different job and that was only part-time. And I've been working on this since February of last year. And so like there's a real world in which everything fails and it, I mean, I, I will do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen, but we're in a very, very difficult space where things fail all the time. And I think that if a project fails, a founder isn't obligated to work on it for like for free and make no money and not provide for their family for like seven years of their life, right? Like at the end of the day, it is a tech startup. So I guess the, 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 the two routes are, hey, we're wildly successful. Great. I eventually scale myself out. We're mildly successful I'm going to do everything I can to get us to that point where we're wildly successful and just enjoy having fun with this community. And if we completely fail, which I, I don't think is what's going to happen, I'm pretty confident in our team and what we're building. Like I would say very confident. And also we have the community already. Um, but if we did totally fail, uh, what matters most is that we get to a point where we say, listen, we did every single thing we can, but it's just not sustainable to keep trying and, I don't know how far down the road that is. I think that's, it, it's definitely not like a month from now. Uh, and I think a lot of project founders don't want to say that because I might scare their holders, but like we're in the startup tech world and if we fail, like 
and there's no money coming in, like I can't work this like it's a full time job with no income for five years, you know. So I don't know. Like <laughs> that was probably not the the most PR savvy answer, but that's the the genuine answer, heart on my sleeve, how things are, and I'm going to do every single thing I can possible to make this project successful, and and work on it as long as possible. Yeah, man, that makes. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think value the honesty for sure. Um, you do mention so, like, once you like knock on wood, you manage to like scale it out and make it in a place where you can scale out of it. Once you're out of that, what do you want to do? Is there something that you want to do like in life when you're detached from needing to run a project and maybe needing to pay rent and all of that, like a further purpose that goes beyond web three and the collective and all that? Yeah, I'm, I'm rather active uh, this is a whole other rabbit hole, but I've I've been rather active a lot of my life in, in missions work I've been to. Um, yeah, without going into a big rabbit hole, I've 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 been a part of that for a large part of my life, and it's something that I, I definitely would like to do again one day. Um, all of this would, if I ever did scale out, um, I don't mean entirely scale out. I, I'd love to get to a point where we can have such a good functioning team that I'm able to to do those things that I'd love to do again one day. Um, and still be, you know, putting hours into this and, and, and owning it and, and being a part of it. So it, it's not an entire scale out. I think I'm in web three for life kind of thing. Um, I probably slightly misspoke when I said completely scale myself out. I didn't mean completely. Um, I had one more thought, sorry, but yeah, like I think something that the people who really know me and some of the listeners there know is that I'm actually someone who there's a reason I haven't gone to the IRL events. I, I like the quiet life. I'd love to have, you know, my future family, wife and kids in a cabin in the woods and not be on my iPhone for 10 hours a day. You know, <laughs> like I just don't want to be on my computer 10 hours a day. I want to do things that are much more meaningful in life. Uh, but that being said, I think what we're doing here is meaningful. And so I always want to be involved in this in some capacity, but 10 years from now, I don't want to be shit posting on Twitter and be on my iPhone for 10 hours a day. I'd love to be managing the business in a way that is sustainable long-term and not a dread to my mental health and potentially make me burn out. Uh, I don't want to be as active as Frank is the way he is right now, 10 years from now. I, I don't think that's sustainable over decades. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because I don't think a lot of people want to be in the same place that they are now in 10 years. At the end of the day, that's kind of a reality for most people. No one wants to stagnate for a whole 10 years. Absolutely. And I think it's just like there's things. Listen, I, I've seen these guys in the NFT space or in the crypto space become so important and focus so much on business that they neglect their their girlfriend or wife or kids and Man, if I ever do that, um, that would be a, a massive shame. There, there are things more important than NFT pictures. And I think family is at the top of that list. But there's other things too, general charity. And um, I just think that, man, life is so much more than Web3. And spending 10 hours a day in quote-unquote Web3 is not healthy for anyone's um, mental health. But 
you know, so just finding a way to do it as as a job, but also it not overtaking your entire life while also still benefiting your holders and not, you know, you still want to give it everything you have. So right now I'm 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 not at that point. I have to give it more than full time hours, um, otherwise it would hurt the holders. And so that's why I'm not doing that. I, I would only ever scale into that if I knew that we were at a place where we could do that and it wouldn't hurt the community. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I wanted to to bounce off of that comment earlier about that balance between the Web3 world and the IRL side and being able to like be with family and be with your girlfriend and be with your like friends and everything. And so have you managed to hold that balance even now? And just is there like are you still um is there a bridge between the two in the sense that maybe you're working with people that you are friends with IRL or maybe you've onboarded like family to Web3 or I don't know, some kind of a connection between the two? Uh, so I haven't onboarded people into Web3 and no one I work with uh, is someone I know in real life. In terms of just balance, uh, my life balance was very good. My post NF Totally Influencer arc, uh, I had pretty good balance there. It's been worse for about a month now, but I would say from August to end of January, it was very good. January was actually the opposite. I had swayed so far where I was barely involved at all. Like I tweeted every month that I've been uh, with this account, I tweeted about like an eighth in January as I did every other month. And <laughs> Uh, definitely was not active enough, but we were kind of in limbo behind the scenes of the collective. So um, that was the wrong direction of balance. And so now I think a pendulum swing too far the other way. So I'm not at that balance now. Uh, the plan would be to, in my eyes, I'd like to have a really good Web3 versus real life balance come and, you know, maybe next September. Okay, yeah. So as much as that balance is important, sometimes you also need to have a moment when you're more on one end than the other, right? Yes, 100%. And so that's where I, I, I've acknowledged that, hey, this is that sort of get through this moment so that we can set something up that's sustainable, even if it isn't right now. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Completely random question. When you switched from NF Toli to Yako, why? What was the origin behind the name Yako? Uh, so my name is Yako. Uh it's my it's my Finnish oh, name. Okay. <laughs> um, there was back then there was two reasons. One, I was kind of at the end. I was already kind of tired of the influencer thing, uh, and I just felt like, man, something nice is to just go by your name. Like it's freeing for people just to know your first name. And I had started working at a DeFi protocol, and that was the first time I kind of started doxing. Um, and so I was like, you know what? Let's just let's just go for it. Uh, it's my name. And so that was the, the biggest, biggest reason was I, I didn't really care to be an NFT influencer at that time. And I liked going by my name. Um, but now I just realized like talking to friends, NF Tolly is such a more iconic name for NFTs. And, you know, Yako is a name that doesn't ring and it's hard for people to even know how it's pronounced. And some people, there's similarities to Jago, who's another person in the space. And, you know, like NF Tolly just as an NFT influencer name kind of slaps and so I, I, I went back. Oh, and the last one is that, you know, 
the name is derived from a play on Anatoly's name. And like Anatoly's a friend. Like we we've DM'd a bit and you know he we engage with each other's tweets and it it feels weird to kind of be like a derivative. But I think now Anatoly is so clearly seen as separate from Anatoly that it's not really an issue. But that was something that was also on my mind. I'm like, I don't want to be Tolly forever. Like Tolly, like Anatoly is Tolly, not me. Um, and so most people still call me Yako, and the Thug Monks call me Jake. It's just become a meme. So like my my name is Jake in the Indie Monks community instead of Yako, and so that's where it came from. But um, I've kind of distanced again from Yako, but most people still call me that because, you know, if I was in, if Anatoly was here right now, you wouldn't be calling me Toli, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think I actually, just before you mentioned the Toli, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Toli is like, it's the NFT version of Anatoly. Exactly. Yeah, it rings so that. well. Anatoly, Anatoly. Yeah. Like, it just has this, uh, yeah. It works. It, it's funny. But so, I know, like, Back away from that, like completely, complete tangent of mine. Um, you were mentioning that whole like the potential of a project kind of just not working out, which is a reality, right? In all of the space, you can. I mean, obviously there are the rugs, which is just people fucking up and being assholes, whatever. And then there's like the form functions of the world where it just wasn't working. And so, what do you think are well? In terms of, I think, I'm not sure if this is like the greatest transition, but there's like a reality that you're, all of this is, all that you're doing is very much based on blockchain tech, right? And so are you ever, like, how important is blockchain tech to the project itself? And are you ever worried about that tech maybe not working or government regulations or all of these different things that can happen because we're in such an uncertain space? Yeah, okay. Um, there's a lot there. Um, how important is blockchain tech? Incredibly. And I'm not too worried about blockchain going away forever. Uh, but I, I do think like, you know, if blockchain doesn't grow and people don't come, it's going to kind of be like a desert, right? Uh, in terms of regulation and things like, should something like Solana and ETH and Polygon all get like simultaneously banned in this sort of nightmare scenario where you can't use them in in most countries. Um, I'm fairly confident with one arm and a partner we're working with in the tech world that we could continue our digital collectible culture uh, in partnership with this unnamed partner that we've been alluding to for a while. Um, because if anyone knows how to deal with regulation in literally the entire world, it's, it's this company. And so the fact that we're able to partner with them and launch digital collectibles with them and point people back to Solana is really good now. But let's say Solana didn't exist, we'd still be able to function in cooperation with them. Um, and if that meant somehow porting things there, uh, whatever it looks like, we would. But I, I don't I, I don't foresee that happening. Uh, that's not why we're partnering with them. We're partnering with them because we want to, you know, reach the normies and bring them back to Solana. So, but... I, I would feel pretty com comfortable if that sort of nightmarish situation did happen. Fair enough. Why is blockchain tech so important to the collective? I mean, blockchain tech is important to the collective primarily because we're building on blockchain tech. Uh, but I, I do agree with Anatoly's sort of mission, and that's to bring the power of cryptography to the masses. And I think that that's a net positive for the world when you let people be able to 
have custody of their own digital assets as we go into a hyper-digitalized world. Um, I think it's borderline essential. And so when I look at uh, blockchain tech and why we're building on blockchain, well, first of all, it's because this is where the capabilities are. This is where the culture is, this is where the people who care about NFTs and one-on-one artists are. Um, but I also just think that it, it, it has tremendous opportunity to disrupt specifically Solana. Um, there's certain efficiencies Solana has that are even more efficient than certain centralized Web2 counterparts that Solana has the ability to disrupt. And so because we believe in Solana, um, building on blockchain, sorry, so blockchain is important because I believe in cryptography for the masses, cryptography to the masses and the ability for all people to have custody of their own assets. But Solana in particular is important to us because I believe Solana can disrupt current Web2 infrastructure things that exist in the internet. And if Solana can do that, then we want to position ourselves here because we want to be a part of whatever the future holds. So that's why we're always going to do everything we can. Um, I, I can't quite say the platforms we're building, but one of them is very similar to a Web2 platform, and it literally would be better in so many ways if Solana was the backbone of it. And so that's the biggest reason why it's important for us. Sorry, I got animated in that question because I'm, I'm trying to walk on, walk on eggshells here with the team listening in the recorded space. Oh, man, I shouldn't have told you it was recorded or something. <laughs> Just to get all the information out and then be like, huh? It's like, it is recorded. But yeah. Um, obviously that's fair because you don't want to release everything and it all needs to be on a schedule. Um, speaking on blockchains, if you had to, because you talk about an onboarding normies, right? How, not so much, I think it's, how would you, how do you think you manage to onboard normies? Because I don't think many people care about the tech so much, right? Because if you tell them, oh, you can get a non-fungible token, no one cares, which is why people call it digital collectibles. If you talk about decentralization, no one really cares about the world itself. It's more about the implications, right? So how do you get the normies interested? Well, there's two different ways to approach this. And I think the obvious one is to say the way normies have been interested in the last you know, two cycles, and that is uh, speculative assets. And so that's not really my intention, but realistically speaking, the only way you've onboarded anyone into the space is because of speculative assets, the promise of things going up. Oh, have you seen how much this NFT went up? Uh, have you seen how much this Shiba Inu went up? Oh, I heard Bitcoin's going to go up, XRP, whatever. It's it, it's speculative assets and people wanting to make money. Um, that's the, been the number one use case of onboarding normies. And so if you have another bull market, you're probably going to onboard more normies just because of the, the nature of speculation. But I, I think if you look at a higher level and a larger time frame. Ideally, you want to be building products on blockchain tech that uh, don't simply target, target people's desire to make money, but actually target their dopamine or, for example, just services they use in general. And if you can disrupt those with something that's more efficient, which right now Solana isn't more efficient than some centralized things, but it, it is more efficient than others, um, the moment you have made the onboarding process so seamless that whatever sort of thing they use right now tied to their bank, they can, on their phone, uh, they can use a very similarly looking app with a similar UI UX and it's all run with, you know, Solana on the back end. The moment you've done that is the moment you've truly won at building something that can onboard the masses. And it doesn't have to not be speculative. Like it could be mobile banking. 
right? Like neobanks have disrupted banks. Uh, you could have a, an app on your phone that when you add, you, you know, you use an on-ramp and you add USDC to your phone. And the moment you have USDC, it's actually, it's just sitting in your wallet, but it's gaining interest because it's, it's yield farming. Uh, but the moment you spend it, it with Solana Pay, it's no longer yield farming, right? So that's, that's still financial. So it is possible to do it financially. But I'm talking like, how do we disrupt TikTok? How do we disrupt, um, you know, supply chain? How do we disrupt social media and uh, marketplaces, freelance marketplaces, things like that? Uh, that's when I think we've, we've started to actually target things that are not primarily speculative, but we're definitely years away from that. Well, the tech for neobanks on your phone is already here, but a lot of these things we're still away from. Do you think, as, as, like, as much as we are away from it, do you think anyone is already starting to edge on that disruptive line, or have we not even reached that point yet? I think, I think people have started that, um, especially wallet infrastructure. I don't think we're very far from you know, having a, an on-ramp that sends USDC to your phone and it feels like a bank and it's earning higher yield and maybe it has self-repaying loans and maybe it has a, a texting feature within the app to other wallets. Like, I don't think we're very far from that. Um, I guess on the other things, it depends what you're talking about. I mean, a lot of people believe in gaming for onboarding, so a lot of people are focusing on that. Um, so that one is, is being built out. In terms of like social media, people have tried and people are working on it, but I don't know how close we are on that one. I could be t like just grossly miseducated, but I don't think we're incredibly close on disrupting social media using blockchain tech. Um, but most of those things I said, I think people are building it. Uh, pe people know the future use cases. The, the one that will be the hardest is tokenizing real world unique assets. So, you know, we've tokenized gold, we've tokenized dollars, but tokenizing house mortgages and smart fridges and Teslas um, is going to be the most complicated one for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I wonder if, because a lot of people will tell you that I mean, not maybe not that many people will tell you that, but there's quite a few people that have like evoked the idea of blockchain being a completely disruptive technology that kind of completely changes the way we see things on different levels, right? Having, well, exactly like the the real estate market just being completely tokenized or things like that. Do you think, like, on a this is a very maybe philosophical and very broad question, right? But how much of a disruptive element do you think blockchain really will be will it be will it take over a lot of what oh i think you're starting to lag there i think you're rugging pedro uh, i've seen you muted but i missed the end of your i think segment it, there yeah i disconnected for half a second i'm not sure wow but where did it end uh you were saying do you think sort of like tokenizing assets will be so disruptive? Like, like how, how disruptive do you think blockchain will be? I think was kind of what you were alluding to. Yeah. Basically like, do you think it can really, how far do you think it goes into the change of like real world and will it mesh with web two or not? Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts, but the only valid answer is I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but my, my initial thoughts on that is, one, it depends how successful Solana is or maybe similarly designed blockchains in the future that might disrupt Solana. 
So, you know, can Solana become the global price discovery machine it wants to become? Well, then, yeah, it's pretty darn disruptive. Um, will governments allow it, etc.? cetera? Uh, but I think there's tremendous value to owning your assets, like with cryptography, for example, smart cars and smart fridges and stuff, where if it's tokenized to you, you're able to actually have ownership of that and sell it. And it might not work unless you've enabled it. So it kind of prevents stealing, right? The issue is it puts a lot more on the line if someone steals your seed phrase. So, it, and, and a lot of people lose their keys. So I, I don't really know the answer to that. I think we're always going to have to have some aspect of centralization because there's always going to be old people. There's always going to be non-tech savvy people. So I don't think we can go to this fully disruptive thing where everyone understands their own keys. I, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it where my car and my fridge and my thermostat and my mortgage and everything is, you know, essentially steel proof because it's tied to my wallet on my phone. But gosh, what happens if I lose my keys? Right. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's feasible to, to fully disrupt everything, but I think there will be specific use cases that it's beneficial for. And I do believe we'll see some aspect of tokenized unique assets through NFTs, but time will tell. Okay, fair enough. And just bouncing off the mention of potentially like other chains, what's your outlook on multi-chain, especially with like the, all the recent youths uh, to Polygon, Dagots to ETH? Do you think multi-chain is important? And what happens if and when a better competitor to Solana emerges and Maybe Solana kind of just like dies, which mm -hmm. it wouldn't really do, but you get what I mean. Right. Okay. So multi-chain depends on a few things. What is the purpose of the chain? So I believe Bitcoin and Solana can coexist, right? Because Solana is not designed from an engineering perspective to be a store of value. In fact, they want the token to not be worth a lot so that um, it doesn't become too expensive for large companies to come and build on it. And it's not extractive of them, right? If they're doing complicated transactions. Um, it's just primarily anti-spam. But Bitcoin is designed to be, you get money and the only way you can create it is by spending energy. Like that's a pretty robust system. And so can Bitcoin and Solana coexist? 100%. Uh, in terms of multi-chain smart contract platforms that are all trying to be the same sort of base layer of this, any type of sort of information transaction, I'm not bullish on multi-chain because I do think whatever is the fastest wins. And even if you build unique propositions like value propositions elsewhere they can be pretty easily built on whatever chain is the best and people will go build on whatever's the cheapest for them and corporations who have to do more complicated like okay the difference between you and me spending a penny or a hundredth of penny on, on a transaction is nothing but the difference between um walmart or amazon or google or facebook spending a penny or a hundredth of a penny on a transaction is is massive and so the, the cheapest, most scalable chain will win. And so this whole multi-chain thing, I mean, it's bottlenecked by the speed of the chains they're talking to. Like you can, you can have all these sort of communications between Solana and Bitcoin uh, if Bitcoin is the main sort of base layer or even Ethereum, but it, it's still bottlenecked by the speed at some aspect of the, of the base layer. And so I'm not a huge multi-chain proponent if you're talking 40 years from now. Uh, pretty big on multi-chain having unique use cases in a five-year window, but probably not a 40-year window. Um, in terms of something disrupting Solana, it would have to be 
it's pretty difficult to disrupt Solana because it's meant to scale via hardware, not software. And so if we get everything figured out and then, you know, Moore's Law, hardware keeps getting faster, Solana is just going to keep getting faster. So it have to be something with a similar design concept, but somehow still faster. Um, it would have to be so much faster to disrupt Solana to move its first movers, like to get rid of its first movers advantage. Like look at how much faster Solana is than ETH and how hard it's been to disrupt Ethereum. Uh, I think Solana is so sufficiently fast that you would need something to be a thousand, like a hundred or a thousand times faster than Solana uh, if the community was starting today to actually disrupt all the sort of base layer things that have been built here, such as Serum, Solana Pay, like having a liquidity layer, all of those things, Metaplex, Candy Machine, like all, all of that stuff that currently exists in infrastructure, you would have to be like, like look like it would have to be a gift horse in order to 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 migrate off of Solana and get rid of that first mover's advantage. And I don't think being like fifty percent faster is going to do that. I think it has to be significant. Okay, that's like a fairly complete answer. Yeah, do, I mean. Because uh, like you're talking about all of this, like the base layer, the speed, the like Solana. I'm just curious, like how much of a fundamental under- understanding of the actual tech behind Solana or behind ETH do you have? Yeah, I tend to sort of position myself as someone that, uh, I mean, I, I try to examine myself soberly and not too trying not to become too conceited. I'd say I'm probably somewhere in between your average NFT bro um, and, you know, the actual developers that are dealing with the nuanced questions. And so yesterday I ran Solana Radio and we had a core dev from Solana debating with one of our friends who's a developer who's done a lot on Ethereum and Bitcoin. And like none of the space knew anything they were talking about. And I realized that because I was only understanding like 50 to 75 percent of what they're talking about and there were terms that i was leaving with i'm like oh my goodness i need to really study this like the the entire debate was should you separate execution um layer and state layer and that's something that becomes very complicated very quickly and these engineering problems are very uh nuanced and you can't just read a few medium articles and think you know what you're talking about so how much of a fundamental understanding do i have probably more than the average NFT bro. I, I've tried to use my platform to kind of help NFT people actually understand what's going on with the tech. But, you know, I get lost when I'm reading, you know, these Solana devs tweets and stuff. I'm not, I, I'm not an expert. Um, when I read, like Anatoly will lose me all the time and I got to go read, read up on things. So I, I like to know how they work so that I can kind of position myself in which ecosystem I think will, will win in the long run. And so far I believe that to be Solana. Um, but I'm I, I'm no I'm not an engineer who's solving these complex problems. So and like just uh, bouncing off, going back to the collective, is there like do you guys have a? I imagine you guys do, but what's the kind of team setup in terms of developers and maybe marketing and different roles within the collective? Yeah, so we don't actually have a full-time developer, but we have very good access to a couple devs in three different directions uh, that we use for different things at the moment, and they're also rather busy. Uh, with one product we're trying to build, we will need a full-time dev, probably even two. And so I'm actually in the process right now of talking to these sort of three arms and figuring out, hey, uh, where should we get that? And so I'm, I actually just got a message during the space from one of them. Um, 
but we, we definitely have some devs who are able to do this efficient, like sufficiently accomplish the, the smaller tools we're building for more game theory aspect things, but some products we're still trying to get full stack in blockchain devs. Um, but we, anyways, uh, and then myself, I'm the founder. Uh, I do most of the front facing stuff, but within the community, we, I mean, we have three other team members on our team right now. We're quite modest and none of us are paid right now, but when we launch, and people start working more full time. We want to make sure people get paid. So Koi down there is the project manager. Um, he helps me with more, I guess, management issues and high level things. Niche is the artist for Indie Cove, and Niche. It's hard to give her a title because she's been incredibly. Uh, she's also, you know, at times been like a community manager. She's at times been sort of an ideator of high level things of what we're going to do like even before koi was on the team me and niche were on calls like how do we you know make the collective something special and so she's been like a huge part of basically every big idea we've come up with behind the scenes um so she's kind of been like part ideator part community part artist um and then albion he's not listening but he's Essentially, I guess term would be community manager, but he's also sort of a creative director in terms of not art creation, but just culture creation and music creation. And just like, hey, does this video mark like because I, I, I do the video editing for our marketing, but Albion's a, a really good guy to go to. Like, what is the, the feel like? What's a song that defines what the collective is going through right now? Like, because, you know, like we we want to portray something like and so he's sort of community and, and creative. So. Yeah, we our titles are pretty bad. If if you made really simple titles, Koi project manager, niche artist and community and Albion community, but they do so much more. They wear many hats and I get too much credit on front facing things that I ought not to because they do a lot behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean the front facing deal is kind of that's kind of the game in NFTs right now. It's all about that one important personality, right? Right, absolutely it is and so um it's just part of the game. Yeah, it is the game, and we're we're playing it, and obviously trying to find ways to meaningfully scale past that. But for now, it's the game. Okay, um, I think that's like a decent place to wrap this up. Oh, one last question: Where did the whole oat oat milk meme come from? And taking shots of oat milk on stream. Yeah, so the the oat milk thing kind of happened organically. I find all the memes in our community just happen organically, and now it's a thing. So there was two things that happened at the same time that kind of made this like, okay, this is a thing now. The first was I haven't uh, I have a secret alt account that's locked, and it's in sort of a more controversial side of Twitter, <laughs> like the more milady side of Twitter um, that most people don't oh, know yes. about. And I just tweeted something about like, hey, this is a unpopular take. But oat milk slaps. Like oat milk is incredible. And I got absolutely clowned by some friends saying like, and I was saying, you know, drinking oat milk is more masculine than eating avocado toast and just getting so clowned by my friends on that. It's all sort of a bit, right? Um, and then the next day, one of the people in the Indie Monks community in the group chat was talking about how oat milk is better than milk. And they were all making fun of him in the group chat. And I was like, no way. So I just kind of like tweeted something about how like, uh, real men drink oat milk and it kind of just from that moment on it just became this meme where we started making everything about oat milk 
and I started tweeting a bunch about oat milk. And then all of a sudden it was like, I should do a stream where I just take a bunch of shots of oat milk for the bit. And, you know, people like to have fun. And when things like that happen organically, you run with it. Like that was the most fun stream I've done. And we just had people doing things to make me take shots of oat milk. Community loved it. It's been funny to meme on. And so when these things happen, you let them happen. Okay, fair enough. Well, on that note, let's close the podcast off. Um, I like having this segment where you get to shout anything out, whether it be the collective or your Twitter or some life advice, really whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, if I were to point people to to two things that I'm working on right now, the, the first is just check out the collective. We've got an art upgrade coming for Indie Monks. Um, we're launching Collective VIP soon. Indie Cove is coming down the road. And then I've recently, I haven't advised in like a year and a half, but I started advising a one-on-one project called Grotos. And I think they're doing cool things. So it's auctions twice a week and there's one happening tonight. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can to help them make it a really cool community to be a part of. And uh, in terms of just the last thing I'd say, because we talked about this a lot in the middle of the podcast, man, there's so much more to life than, than Web3. I used to tweet about this all the time. Get outside, go climb a mountain, go spend time with your loved ones. Don't spend... 14 hours a day trying to find that next mint life is a lot more than money life is a lot more than just being on your smartphone and getting mentally unhealthy and so just you know unplug for a bit and find out what means more to you in this life than crypto that's awesome very beautiful just what's the handle for the grottos uh so people it's grottos nft so g-r-o-t-t-o-s nft and it's in my my handle so like in my bio my and so my handles nft or soul nfts so you can find it there but i i really appreciate it, man this was this was fun and i appreciate you thinking of me and having me here i mean i was really happy to have you here honestly it's i mean i've you were the, literally the first in, uh, influencer i followed and you can you know how you can like look the follower list is chronological so if you go to the bottom you'll see like i don't know solana ethereum like maybe Vitalik, and then there's NF Stoli, and I'm like, oh shit! But like it's so long ago, it's crazy. That's amazing. I'm, I I just can't believe that like <laughs> I've been some people's first uh, exposure to the Solana ecosystem. That still blows my mind because there's a lot of people. Like people came to me, they're like, I thought in spaces when people were talking about Toli being the head of Solana, they were talking about NF Toli, and I'm like, there's just no. Anyways, it's I. Sorry, I don't mean to go on a tangent. I I appreciate that. That means a lot. It's funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> Time, time is fucking flowing and yeah, so different. But anyways, um, yeah, so I do this podcast on Tuesdays and Thursdays for everyone that's listening. So feel free to join. Um, and yeah, you can claim the NFT. It's basically you just get a cool NFT and it's proof of attendance of the podcast. And I'm going to try to do something fun with it, but we'll see what it gives. And uh, yeah, totally. Thanks a lot for being on. And uh Hopefully talk soon and best of luck with the collective. Thanks for having me, man. This is great. Awesome. See you.